0: this episode we've got a special guest k rail that's right it's rail right am i saying it right <laughs> k rail like the highway divider yeah yep correct k rail is a uh, a music a musician are you on tour right now did you start tour no uh uh
1: I, I believe tour stuff is uh towards the end of july and august so at the moment july, it's just okay. prep and corpo work cool i do uh like uh, sound design composition for uh, uh production houses mm-hmm. awesome new media yeah exciting corpo work pay the bills
0: yeah. corpo work bread and butter and then k's with a band getting wild in yoko ono's flat in uh, manhattan <laughs> oliver listened to some of it earlier and he said that you guys look demonic <laughs> 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 Look demonic aesthetic it.
1: yeah it's um we're 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 all certainly uh fans of like Robert Anton Wilson and and uh, the pop culture perception of um, you know uh, Fortean phenomena and, and conspiracies and all that. Sadly, um, I'm yet to get my real invitation to the Illuminati though. So I check my mail every day. It's like it's like adult Hogwarts. You're just waiting for the Eye on the Pyramid to turn up.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. I'm gonna have to fill us in on who that is. I've heard Fortean before, but who's Robert? Oh, 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 uh, Mr. Wilson.
1: Yeah. Uh, Robert Anton Wilson uh, was a writer for Playboy um, back in the 60s and 70s, but he, uh, really, really fascinating dude. He he joined various cults and secret societies and um, wrote predominantly about that stuff. He wrote a trilogy of books called the Illuminatus Trilogy. One is uh Totally fiction, and it's based on like the pop culture of the sixties and seventies. It's kind of in the style of um, Thomas Pynchon and it, uh, or and James Joyce. Yep. So it's kind of like a, mm-hmm. a, a bouquet of strange words and uh, psychedelic stream mm. of consciousness. And that's great. It's a hilarious book. It's really great. The Illuminati trilogy. It's a lot of fun. And um, cool. he has an, he has another trilogy yes, of it. books based on the historical Illuminati, which apparently goes back to a guy named Adam Weishaupt who he uh, claims was uh, moved to America and um, became a guy named George Washington. It's a, it's a, Yeah, they look the same. Uh, look, it's a lot of fun stuff. I don't know how much of it is... is, is uh, there, there was certainly a guy named Adam Weishaupt, uh, but beyond that, I don't know how much of it is accurate. It's just a lot of fun to read that stuff.
0: It's so cool. yeah, Kay is a compendium of, of esoteric knowledge, which is why I thought I he'd be a good, a good guest to bring yeah. on. Awesome. Uh,
1: I, too, have also joined Every Cult and Secret Society. You guys are in uh, Colorado, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. We all just kind of happened to be here at the same time. It wasn't planned. So we figured... I, um...
1: It's kind of one of those, gotta, those, uh, those places that's managed to uh, continue to... Um- it's it's retained a kind of like uh, filmic resonance. Like I've never been there, so it's kind of a combination of like in my head. It's kind of like Mountain Stranger Things with The Shining kind of attached to it. It's like,
2: you
0: know. <laughs> oh yeah, Colorado Springs yeah. has very spooky vibes.
2: Uh, I love we've got it. the I mean, is- Air
0: Force Academy. We got NORAD. We got a whole bunch of churches.
2: Yeah, go ahead. So we talk about a variety of topics. Um, lately, we've been focusing more on science and spirituality um in the beginning it was more social political type of stuff and lately like the last episode we were, we're broaching into some interesting topics about angels and demons and um aliens
0: yeah we've been on like a four was like a three or four episode arc now that started with yeah aliens. yeah I, I did a lot of reading around, the,
1: i did a lot of reading around that stuff it's um yeah, I'm, I'm down with all of it. It's all uh, dovetails pretty nicely with my interests. Like, um, so what awesome. uh, yeah. angle do you guys generally take with this stuff? Are you, I, I've seen it kind of addressed in a lot of different ways. There's, there's kind of like the uh, intelligent, open-minded kind of approach. Uh, but there, there's the also what I kind of, have heard too which is kind of like like just absolutely le- leaning into it all with total belief which i'm less fond of um mm-hmm. w- which side yeah. of the fence do you guys generally fall on with this stuff just so i, I mean I'm, I'm happy to do either like uh we can totally lean yeah. into it and get our foil hats on if you like
3: oh um i i would say i definitely like to keep myself level-headed and, and skeptical and i don't want to jump into anything that, you know, to be said, I, I do like to explore and go down rabbit holes and deep dive into things. I'm not, I'm not scared to deep dive into something just mm. to see what's there.
2: You want to know like our history, like I was raised atheist or agnostic and uh-huh. these guys were raised in a Christian fundamentalist yeah. type of way. I can't really speak to that because I didn't know, but then we all changed. Like I, I got into really into native American spirituality. early 20s and these guys i'll let them speak for that
0: yeah we've we've got a i'd say a bit of ideological uh diversity when it comes to the alien stuff at least Uh um i mean i when we first started talking about it i was kind of like agnostic but then i don't know we brought up some pretty compelling points about it that i find interesting it started out kind of in the wake of uh you know how the uap footage was being declassified oh, yeah
3: yeah it's a big one
0: and that was more specifically about aliens but then in the in the later episodes more recently we've sort of been exploring like parallels between alien you know the alien uh what what would you call it mythos might not be the right word but the, the trope new science that's like the, yeah yeah implied science and science fiction of aliens and then the parallels between that and stuff like um DMT entities and near death experiences and angels and demons and uh the fairies and all <laughs> kinds of all kinds of weird stuff cryptids cryptids yeah and there's like a lot of compelling parallels
1: we we should we should uh somewhat summarize, I think we should summarize the article just so uh, yeah. your listeners feel like Um, They're on board. And I guess my understanding of the article, uh, uh, the internet is made of demons, um, is it starts out by looking at a meme where somebody compares a demonic summoning sigil with a circuit board, Uh um, implying that there is some kind of a a demonic presence in computer technology and the internet. And it, it further extrapolates on that point uh, two ways in a really interesting way and in that it addresses the spiritual implications of that, but also just the materialistic um, uh, metaphoric sense of that.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> all right. Uh, so you, Kay, you sort of, um, I think you read the the main caption from this all started with a meme, like many things, that's where the rabbit hole began. Uh, this is when I was in New York and I was on kind of a schizo Adderall bender Um. This is this meme that that came out. It's like a screenshot of a 4chan post on a screenshot of a Twitter post on another screenshot of a 4chan post. But yeah, you described it earlier. It's like circuitry next to some goetic, demonic sigils and the sort of um, similarities in the way that they look. And it says... The caption is, Boy, I love trapping demons in microscopic silicon megastructures to do my bidding. I sure hope nothing goes wrong. And the point that that is making the sort of fun uh, assertion is that the internet is actually powerful occultism magic used to create uh, a giant hedonistic antichrist hive mind. <laughs> um, and so when I, I mean, I saw that, I was like, oh, that's stupid, but that's kind of funny. Let me look it up. And by the end of the rabbit hole, I was like, oh yeah, no, I know I believe this now the internet's made out of demons. Um, it's
1: literally made out of networks of demonic entities.
0: Yeah. It's like the, um, uh Flintstone's dinosaurs inside the all the machines running the machines um but so there was an article written by Sam Chris that sort of goes deeper into this um, and the most interesting thing to me is that there are a lot of comparisons uncanny comparisons drawn between uh the occult of like ancient texts and some of the cheeky terminology that they used um in developing the like the early internet you know uh arpanet which is like the earliest form of the internet which is a public sector project for military application we've talked about it uh we talked about it in the last episode actually darpa um but yeah i mean there's all kinds of weird things like uh you may be familiar with the term de- demons or daemons d a e m o n uh, which is internet slang for the programs running in the background, um, doing like the invisible work of keeping computer systems running, the things that are like sort of taking information from one place and coding it and, and taking it another place. Uh, it says the word came from Maxwell's demon, which was a 19th century thought experiment that imagined a supernatural creature capable of bringing order to the world. Um, and then there's another interesting one imps. Uh, Jimmy, on a past episode, you were talking about how, like, um, across different pantheons and mythologies, certain creatures and cryptids and um, characters look very similar to, like, imps, for example. I think you originally brought up um, Pan, which is what, Greek or Roman mythology? Right. Uh, Which looks a lot like how we've come to depict. the devil or demons. Um, and imps is the same thing. It's like a mischievous little creature with horns and a pointy chin. And uh, it's like kind of a trickster, uh, trickster god or demigod. Um, but yeah, imps, IMPs, that stood for Interface Message Processor. Uh, it's a packet switching node used to connect participant networks, blah, 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 um, which eventually became what we now call routers. And the interesting thing about imps, based on the original premise of the meme, is that in a lot of um, mythological stories, they're described as being bound or contained in some kind of object, like a, like a sword or a crystal ball, um, kind of like gin in a lamp, uh, to like do the, do the owner's bidding. Mm. At the most basic level, it functions as kind of a fun metaphor, because the internet has made all of our lives objectively worse. And it can be just sort of like a spiritually true shorthand to describe it as demonic or satanic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's uh, so, okay, there's a there's like a paradigm that we use uh, on this podcast sometimes that we made up on this podcast. This isn't a thing. It's not canonical or anything, but uh, Occam's Occam's Razor and Occam's Laser, you know, Occam's Razor is like the simplest explanation is usually true. Simplest explanation, the internet sucks, but it has more to do with, you know, we're kind of just creating our own hell with these systems that sublimate our social experience and actually make us more alienated and um, atomized and sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but then maybe the more fun tinfoil hat take is, uh, is that, yeah, the it all, all of what's advanced to us as like technology that we kind of take on faith uh, that exists is actually just a, a premise for trapping demons in uh, in microchips and and making them do our bidding or or eventually really us doing their bidding that's like that's kind of the main premise of the article is that we created the internet with this premise of making us all more connected as a way of communicating mm-hmm. um but it's sort of taken on a life of its own and now in a very real way we're not so much communicating authentic to ourselves or with free will, but sort of communicating for the feedback loop that the internet and yeah. social media has created. You know, you get yeah. like real time feedback on if this thought uh, is good or if it's popular, you know, and it, it, it's all fed through these kind of black box algorithms that we don't understand how they work. We just sort of take it on faith and it and it most definitely changes our behavior mm-hmm. uh, and the way we talk, you know. Yeah
1: we're primed for communicating using symbol systems, you know, we're primed for communicating using metaphors. So like to talk about these systems as, as demonic and and to consider like demonic possession and all these other things, like it is an emotionally satisfying metaphor for like explaining how the technology is kind of somewhat corrupting and how Mm -hmm. the technology is, is, is a black mirror of our worst uh, qualities. Like um, that's, Something that like uh, Baudelaire, the French poet, got from uh, Swedenborg is he's like this idea of correspondences is, is fantastic. I mean, I can apply this to art, and it is I can communicate something really deep and profound using purely a series of symbolic and, and metaphoric gestures, and uh-huh. it becomes a less tri- trite statement by disguising, uh, you know an aphorism inside a bunch of like um uh, uh, psychologically fulfilling images and that led to surrealism and all kinds of stuff like mm-hmm. we're primed mm-hmm. for communicating like that right the problem is is that human beings rarely recognize when their 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 understanding of something is wholly metaphoric or it's it's literal and material we have a real uh-huh. complicated relationship with truth right mm. and so like uh whatever the phenomena of aliens is you know like we whether they're aliens or fairies or multidimensional beings expressing mm-hmm. themselves through the lens of our understanding uh you know we we struggle to differentiate metaphor from material you know like uh, that's that's where mm-hmm. uh, as a, a society and a species we could really grow up is in taking all the great qualities of um, the religious mind, which was the ability to communicate wholly in metaphor, mm-hmm. um, which uh, Fraser explored in his uh, like multi-volume series on um, uh, uh, sociology and early primitive religions and stuff called The Golden Bough. Um, mm-hmm. Like they would, they would look at a tree and they'd be like, "The tree is evil and full of the evil spirits, and if you go near the tree, it's bad." But ultimately. All, the reality of the situation was the tree was poison, and it will, you know, cause you to piss blood. So right. by understanding it on an, an emotional, metaphoric <clears throat> level, it kept the tribe alive. Right? right. Um, we we could we could still gain a lot from converting our material experience into metaf- little didactic, metaphoric nuggets for easy digestion. But we just need to be mature enough to know when we're doing that, so we don't end up as like you know. And weird, and starting mm-hmm. a new religion, and like just mm-hmm. going through the same circle, drain circling exercise again and again. Yeah, we we yeah. just need to
2: know when we're bullshitting ourselves. Basically, that's just looking at angels and demons in a different way, in a more pragmatic, uh I guess, easy, more palatable way that, than I've ever been exposed to before. You know, Jimmy's starting to introduce me to this.
3: Swedenborg stuff yeah I guess the Swedenborg demon would just be a psychological sin something that you're trying to like that you you might not even notice in yourself but it's it's as simple as like a selfishness
2: it's a human that died yeah and their spirit just hung well, out in a shittier state of mind because it's more fun it's not <laughs> not because they're evil um or they're cursed it's yeah. because they're it's more fun to be partying it up you know
3: yeah, well the, the yeah, the idea is that you're on a journeyman experience um you know in reality and you it that just continues on in the spirit world. So well, however you are now is how you will be when you pass on. And there isn't a a hell of of fire that you are punished in within. It you just are still working through your same issues, you know, and but you're doing in a in the spirit world, so it's a little different. Um there's different rules there. But for the most part, you kind of somewhat end up like with like yeah Yeah. uh yeah
1: the first thing you brought up which is swedenborg and what he called uh correspondences and that was where he claimed that there was a uh as you said a one-to-one correspondence with uh, events and emotions and, and experiences in the material realm with another spiritual realm that overlays existence. That, that was his claim. Manuel Swedenborg is an interesting guy because he was otherwise um, incredibly uh, uh, he was an incredibly successful engineer. He uh, was very scientifically minded. He was well respected in the business community. Um, right. and amongst royalty and the celebrities and elite of the day. And then he claimed with absolute um, certainty to have experienced travels and experiences in these these higher dimensions. Um, he's kind of the, the, the uh, European equivalent of America's uh, Ed, Ed, Edgar Cayce, um, mm-hmm. who also would take an afternoon nap and drift away on the astral plane um he mm-hmm. he said it was uh engaging with the akashic records and then mm-hmm. came back with sim- similar nice. similar details um i mm. as you said it's a really interesting way to like think about angels and demons um primarily because it's it's kind of a distillation of like the artistic experience you're 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 taking. Uh, something material like our emotions or or um you know seeing a bird and you're applying kind of an artistic mindset to it or a schizophrenic mindset to it if you like i mean it it can there's it's a vast spectrum of experience um but you're 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 reading metaphor in in solid data and you're you're there there's there's a communication with the self that occurs in art and in Swedenborg's system of correspondences where you're you're kind of reading who you are via these metaphors of experience like that stuff's really really interesting so that's my response mm. to your first mm. first point about Emanuel Swedenborg very well um, said
3: yeah yeah very well said
1: Let me pose what I think as a question: um, If right. you had, high, if you had as a as a culture or a country, if you had technology that was so far in advance of the rest of the world that um, if this technology got out, it would it would it would just it could potentially decimate the surface of the Earth. Um, but you still needed to use that technology in an effective way to police your borders and, and otherwise um would it possibly be an effective strategy to seed culture with a story that this technology was not yours but someone else's to also you know cover Uh, for the fact that this technology also abducts people and does on you know medical experimentation apparently and all kinds of stuff like mm, i mean yeah
0: hmm, maybe a a clark's third law kind of uh uh, premise for what's actually domestic technology
1: the uaps um which is the newest phrase for ufos
0: um right. unidentified yeah, aerial phenomena acronym, they <laughs> trotted out
1: yeah which is interesting I, I think the uh because ufo i guess it's be, uh, which uh they were also called foo fighters right during world war Two. oh yeah um, foo fighters during the, the 20th century, uh, we saw um, reports of UFOs uh, going back to the 19th century, in the 19th century, there were uh, reports all over the world of, of, of uh, what they called flying dirigibles, which is another name for mm. a boat. Um, and so this yeah. is a, this is an old phenomenon uh, and but we've seen it go from boats to uh, silver, uh discs with little windows to black triangles to whatever it's up to now and so look that that technological progression can be explained either materialistically as it's people and there is a very very effective cultural cover story or it's potentially you know to look at it from the other side and put a foil hat on it's potentially uh it's a phenomena that exists concurrently with the human perception of that phenomena, much like your fairies and uh, your aliens. um, Potentially there is some kind of one-to-one interaction with the human perception of that phenomena, right? So Mm. if if we're a technological species, we see technology flying around the skies. If we're an ocean faring species, we're going to see boats, but it's the same thing. It's just via the lens of our knowledge and perception
2: yeah that's very that's very similar to what we were saying yeah. in the last um yeah. episode I it's really mm-hmm. yeah
0: this yeah came perceptive,
2: up. the perceptive uh ability of humans is often limited we have we're, we're confined by the signifiers that we are aware of mm-hmm. so in some cultures that might be a fairy and for us it's it's a it's an alien. Whitley
0: Strieber alien. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like after yeah. space yeah. exploration started to to kick off, you know, the space race, the Cold War, then we had this concept of aliens that, if you look at the the details of it, were very similar, similarly described by, like, earlier mythologies. So we talked about how, fa- you know, fairies or the fae, we used to have this concept of these, like, strange otherworldly beings you know when when the frontier of space wasn't really a concept but our otherness was like uh the wilderness you know the green world and there were these beings that would uh you know show up and like abduct you and perform sexual experiments and breeding experiments um, but i i i've never heard the flying dirigible thing for aliens that's interesting because for a while we thought dirigibles were going to be like the next the next big thing I, you said boats but i thought dirigibles is like airships like like blimps, isn't it? Zeppelin. Zeppelin. Zeppelins.
1: Yeah, it's a it, dirigible just means something you can steer, basically. So originally uh, dirigible was was used primarily for boats. So when they were talking about flying dirigibles, yeah, I mean uh it, it does mean an airship. Um but it's it's anything steerable. But from my to from my limited knowledge on in my reading. People were seeing flying flying ships like uh, okay. like like a like a galleon or something.
0: Yeah, I've heard. Um, so not too long ago, uh, I went to a, a book reading with the guy who wrote the uh, the Pasadism book, the book about like commie aliens, uh, A.M. Gillis, <laughs> who said he said he uh, wanted to be a guest on the podcast, so we might get him on at mm, some point. I feel I they know. have to read the book first to be. Uh, oh, that's fantastic! But he he used the term ultra terrestrials to describe what we know of as, or we think of as extraterrestrials coming from another galaxy or another, not probably not another galaxy, but another star system. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that, well, maybe these things are interdimensional or intertemporal. Mm-hmm. So if this is, you know, if if they're traveling, maybe they're traveling through time with a limited bandwidth or they're traveling from a parallel dimension where we have, slightly different or slightly advanced technology and that could be an explanation for why the experiences the sightings of ufos change over time and are usually like vaguely contemporary to the technology that we have at at the time but you know slightly advanced or slightly different Mm
1: -hmm. yeah that's Mm -hmm. that's 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 really an interesting point uh I have something. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but if you want to take uh, two minutes to look at some supplementary material, that if you haven't seen yeah, it, sure. is a lot yeah. of fun and will blow your mind. Um, yeah, sure. I'm gonna drop. I'm gonna drop it in the Zoom chat here. I just need to find it for you guys. Okay, so the concept. Uh, well, what this is about is: um, Are you guys familiar with the Art Bell show?
0: Oh yeah, the radio host.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of his shows was about, they were discussing Area 51, and he had a uh, caller call in claiming to be an ex-employee of Area 51. I I don't know whether that's accurate or not, uh, but the the circumstances surrounding the call are just so much fun and the, the panicked inflection in the guy's voice as he's like, Mm. it's, it's like right out of a sci-fi movie. And he talks about, um, basically higher dimensional beings and an earlier precursor of the space program, which is possibly, um, uh, we'll get into that in a second. Anyway, let me send you this.
0: Yeah. I think you, you showed this to me, uh, a few years ago actually, and it was chilling, Mm. It's very oh, yeah, convincing, it's and and then oh, since so then, fantastic.
1: Here you go guys. people have so come forward claiming there. to
0: have been the guy from the call. Mm-hmm. But since you showed it to yeah, me, yeah, it, yeah. It, it like gets sampled in electronic music and stuff. I'll hear. Um, I, let me see if I could pull it up here so we can all listen to it. Yeah, it's
1: uh, a Area Fifty-One frantic caller. I, uh, it's on YouTube. Huh. all right but yeah take uh, take a moment to listen to this this is fantastic he put it in the uh, okay. you can, uh mm. he's watching it right there the great American Southwest
2: I okay, okay. You all, good
4: evening good morning as the case may be across all these many many prolific time zones. From the Hawaiian and Te- Asian island chains in the west, eastward, across flyover country to the Virgin Islands, U.S. Virgin Islands, Caribbean, where Montserrat continues.
0: Somebody made a little animated art bell for this.
4: The area of the U.S. government.
0: Uh, Let me skip ahead.
4: Uh, anyway, something like that. And if uh, you want to call up and sing, it's going to be your night to sing. It'll be fun to see if you on my Area 51 line. You're on the air. Hello. Hello, Yes. Hi. Right. Um, I, I don't have a whole lot of uh, time. Um, well, look, look, let's begin yeah. by finding out whether you're using this line properly or not.
5: Area 51. Yeah, um,
4: that's right. Were you an employee or are you now? I. A former
5: employee. Former um, employee. I, I, I was let go on a medical discharge about a week ago and... and <laughs> I, I've kind of been running a, across the country. Um, oh man, I don't know where to start. They're they're, uh, they're, they're gonna um they'll triangulate on this position
4: really really soon. So um, you can't spend a lot of time on the phone. So give us something quick.
5: Okay. Um. Um. Okay. Well, okay. what we're thinking of as as aliens are they uh they're they're extra dimensional beings that an earlier precursor of the um, space program made contact with they, uh, they they are not what they claim to be uh, they have infiltrated a lot of uh, a, a lot of aspects of, of, of the military nostalgia particularly the area 51 uh, the, the disasters that are coming they the, the military I'm sorry. The, the government knows about them, and that there's a lot of safe areas in this world that they could begin moving the population to now. Are
4: but they're not doing. They're not doing anything. They are
5: not. They want the major population centers wiped out, so that the, the few that are left will be more. Easily
2: controllable. I've heard that. Heard this. Yeah. Discharge. Mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: Wow. Yeah, this is like his, his most famous caller,
4: I think. Well, this was certainly interesting. Mm -hmm. We are now on a backup. One call calls, trans- back in, our calls back in. By satellite went down here. He
3: calls back in. He calls again? End. Oh, right, a satellite. And we, and oh, that's... Trans- we, that's... System by All the way to the end.
4: Down here, ...and we were notified we were off the air, and it would appear to be from this end and some sort of uh, massive transmit failure. So we are now wow. using a backup system to be wow. on the air. And not you that I would normally believe off. this kind of thing, mind you but i can't help but wonder if somebody somebody zapped us in some way
2: uh
3: we'll find out wow wow
2: wow. (laughs) yeah so reducing the population Mm -hmm. so that they're easier to control i've heard this in another location like another speculating based off of uh, information like data that we see and the things that people are doing uh, you know tangible things that you can just see for yourself, you know? And I never thought of it that way. I always thought that they wanted to pro- us to produce more babies because then we can feed the machine. Uh, but now, um,
1: it's really cool. perspective. I don't know. Like I, I kind of go back and forth when you think about this stuff. Um, there's, there's such a bias in us to, to panic do you know what I mean because if you look at, if you watch any amount of news it is so despairing that mm-hmm. there there there's a human need to explain that despair with intent and so i think that like a lot of, i'm not saying conspiracy theories are untrue i mean it's a fact that the cia created the term conspiracy theory to discredit um, mm. People looking into the, the conspiracy of the mm. Kennedy assassination. JFK. Um, so yeah, look, right. look. There's a certain amount of irony to, to criticizing something by calling it a conspiracy theory. Um, but I'm also aware of of uh, you know as, as intelligent beings, we seek patterns, and and these the patterns we apply to explaining the world aren't always accurate. So I, tr- I try and I I try and speculate heavily on a lot of ifs without really believing them because to believe them Mm. is to like just it's it's so crushing to your soul to believe that like there 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 are groups of people that that who collectivize around a a a kind of um uh they they collectivize around dark tetrad personality traits you know like like psychopaths Mm. and machiavellianism Mm -hmm. and sociopathy and whatnot like it's despairing Mm. but it doesn't make it untrue Um, Mm -hmm. so uh, yeah, it's, it's possible that there Mm -hmm. is somebody out there has the idea that there are, are too many people and there should be less people. It's absolutely possible. Um, it's also possible that there's collections of, of people who want, who perceive that, um, humanity, we, we have a lot of inbuilt, um, we have a lot of inbuilt behaviors that almost um, that that make chaos and and despair and, and inevitability. And so it's possible that there are good groups too that want to address those inbuilt behaviors in some way. I'd, I'd right, like to believe right. that. I've seen I've seen less evidence that there are is some kind of good guy group out there running the world than there is a bad one. But you know, I like to hold hope that. I there feel is.
2: like the good guy group is more of a grassroots phenomenon. It's pe- It's people that you find in little communities, like uh, trying to f- fix things, you know, in like in their little small town. That's where I and see there, the the good guy phenomenon, you know.
1: Well, therein therein lies the therein lies the core behavioral. Um, uh, that th- that's the problem with the world, is that if you're an ethically good person, um, you have nothing to hide. So mm. your need for a group to be protected by is less. And you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Mm. Yeah, We talked about this uh, in a past episode. um, I think when we were first, when the Epstein stuff was first coming out. Mm. Um, And I think, yeah, yeah, we, what we had, the conclusion we had come to was that it's not just that um, power corrupts like the idiom goes, but also that corruption empowers. Mm -hmm. Because when you have enough corrupt people, in the highest levels of power they select for other Mm -hmm. people who are equally complicit. Mm -hmm. And that's, that is sort of a bonding, uh, exercise. Yeah.
1: And there's, there's uh, Mm -hmm. a little bit of intent. There's a lot of intent. Have you guys seen, uh, uh, Curtis's, uh, Adam Curtis's, uh, documentaries, particularly, uh, the trap. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Have you seen this one Mm -hmm. where, where he, Okay, uh, I'll give you the, the TLDR about a point there. Are you guys familiar with the movie A Beautiful Mind? Yeah, about John mm-hmm. Nash. Um, totally. John Nash was a mathematician and game theorist, and um, right. he, during his college years, uh, came up with a game called "Fuck Your Buddy," and the fuck you, buddy. the uh, "Fuck You Buddy" or "Fuck Your Buddy," "Fuck Buddy." Um, mm. Yeah, fuck, <laughs> it was called. He came huh. up with a game called fuck, fuck Buddy. It was it was an earlier precursor to Tinder, um, right. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so so in this game, it was an economic game. the The only way to win was to aggressively fuck over everybody else. If you if you exercised any amount of, of cooperation or or sensitivity, you would lose very very badly. Now right. uh, the Rand. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah exactly. monopoly it, it was basically akin to
0: the the prisoner's dilemma is also one that uh, yes sort of yes has the uh, same it's result. it's
1: yeah yeah parallels with the prisoner's dilemma now the rand corporation who do a lot of like social engineering and, and uh social right. research programs
0: yeah the rand corporation uh the rand corporation which which gets its namesake from uh famously miserable Seaward, uh ayn rand uh, the the godmother of modern american libertarianism which we've also talked about at length on this podcast yeah
1: yeah now the rand corporation they uh took those algorithms and uh applied them at scale to win the cold war basically uh if the logic being that if you uh demilitarize your your capacity if you lessen your capacity for for nuclear annihilation you're going to be the one on the receiving end of it. And the only way to therefore win is to mm-hmm. uh, pursue the most nukes. And that's where mutually assured destruction, mm-hmm. the idea of mutually assured destruction came in. Yeah. Um, so right. in this documentary, it kind of tracks that that was applied to winning the Cold War, but it also became an effective um, a- an effective component of government and corporations where uh, government and <clears throat> Excuse me. Government and corporations would would uh, under the auspices of HR and psychological health, they would keep track of the the personnel who had um, high, who were high scoring in a dark tetrad of personality traits. Because if you were mm-hmm. selfish and psychopathic and, and uh, Machiavellian, you're more likely to follow corporate directive. You're not going to make Mm -hmm. an ethical decision, which is a singular person against the world. Um, You're gonna do what you're told for sex, money, and power, basically. And so the logic being that this would create more long-term stability. So it kind of enabled a lot of like really bad Mm -hmm. things about us. And we kind of created a society and culture where uh, the fewer ethics you have, the higher you can potentially go, and the more power, Mm -hmm. sex, money, and power you will achieve.
2: It sounds like we agree on a lot of things, Kay. I'm wondering why why would you want to be associated with the Illuminati? Is it uh, you know? You were, earlier you were talking about it as just the hog, the Hogwarts of adulthood. I'm wondering what's the goal is it to uh, oh infiltrate? yeah no
1: no yeah no that was just a joke i mean uh okay look look See, i yeah, didn't catch that yeah no i i I say a lot of things just for effect, and that one was okay. just a joke mm-hmm. however you okay. know like if however if you were approached by an organization that uh allegedly goes back to what the the 16th and 17th century and had such mm-hmm. members allegedly as francis bacon and uh know john d mm-hmm. etc like i I'd, I'd hear them out you know I'm, I'm not gonna like you know immediately uh, uh turn them down I'm gonna, I'm gonna listen to what they have to say
0: yeah yeah which is why most people um if they actually get an invitation to the eyes wide shut um orgy are gonna be like okay i'll check it out and yeah you end i mean up with the most morally compromisable at the highest positions of power
1: yeah, this brings us... Uh, I mean, this is exactly... Uh, this, this ties into uh, the subject of the show uh, this this month, this week. How often do you put these out?
0: Oh, every...
2: <laughs> we wish it was more often, but we all have jobs. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, we don't get paid for this. So we get maybe like once every couple of months. Yeah, until we get
0: more Patreon subscribers. It's yeah. going to be once every couple of months.
2: It
1: kind of ties in with the theme of... Um, demons running the internet or or this article for this um yeah look um it's it's really fascinating that uh you guys are you familiar with john d
0: i don't think so no
1: no john d uh uh OK, so I'm going to do this off the top of my head, but John D was um, uh, he was in the court of uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, when she was uh, back in the day when she was at war with Spain. And uh, he was an alchemist, which was basically just chemistry at the time um, via spirituality, which was much more prevalent in our culture. But fundamentally, it
0: was the he was an accomplished grifter.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. he was potentially an accomplished grifter, but he also uh at some level I think that that he believed some of that stuff. And his beliefs uh are are pretty consistent with Emanuel Swedenborg's in that he believed there was a correspondence and a spiritual world and there was some kind of interaction between these two planes of existence and consciousness. Um but what right. what how that's relevant to what you were saying is that John D signed his letters 007. And uh, John Dee was uh, hired by Elizabeth to inf- infiltrate the Spanish and um, being a arch bullshitter and being able to tell people you've got the keys to the kingdom and some kind of like spiritual insight or, or you know, occultist knowledge um, that certainly puts you in a lot of powerful circles um with a lot of powerful people. Uh, you know, if, if you mm. claim to have some kind of meaning in life, that's gonna put you in a room with people seeking meaning. Um and mm-hmm. also, as you said, um, if the the rituals and whatnot you're engaging in just so happen to be a little sketchy, it's gonna provide ample amounts of blackmail material against these very kind of mm-hmm. privileged people, mm-hmm. right. right? And so I don't doubt that most occult lodges at some level are co-opted or created to facilitate those kind of relationships with power, you know, getting blackmail, convincing people to do things, controlling people and all that kind of shit. I mean, religion has always kind of been about that. I mean, what, Mm -hmm. what purpose does confession Mm -hmm. serve other than to give all your secrets to the Catholic church? Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So look, mm. yeah, there's there's mm. evidence that John D was the first spy, as I said, he signed his letters 007. Um did John D Crowley... did John
0: D predate Ian Fleming, I'm assuming? Did Ian Fleming 007? Oh yeah, 007 yeah, yeah, him? yeah,
1: by by a uh, couple yeah. centuries. Um yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, uh Alistair Crowley apparently was also you know that name. Yeah. Um I was also mr Crowley. Uh, an MI5 mm. and I uh, was involved in, you know, the 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 sinking of the uh, Louisa Tanya, I think it was but yeah Alice Crowley was working uh, with MI5 and Alice Crowley was was a black magician he was considered culturally to be the wickedest man in the world um, and so again that would uh, anybody that is going to be seeking those kind of experiences is going to provide a lot of like uh, blackmail material to mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. to whoever right um yeah. mm-hmm. Okay, so the the source for Crowley is, uh, let's see here, it's a book by uh, Richard Spence, Um, and Richard Spence argues that uh, he was uh, involved with MI five. He was involved in the uh,
0: now. Richard
2: Spence predated uh, Richard Spencer. (laughs) Just kidding. So at what point is my question is at what point do we start shutting these things out of our minds? You know, like I think about it on Uh. a micro level and on a macro level. Like we do we participate in this society you know we could try to infiltrate or and, I, I, and you I don't know think, i like your approach i think it's impossible going at it
1: i don't think it's i don't think it's possible to infiltrate yeah. a society where the conditions of entry are doing something that are, is morally repugnant yeah like, I, exactly i mean it's kind of a, 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 a in a terrible way um it's it's kind of logically beautiful because like by nature of entering into proximity with a possible group like that you're going to do something that absolutely morally uh, compromises you and also potentially just if you're capable of doing it then you're already a part of the society and if yeah. you're not capable of doing mm. it then you you can't proceed like it's it's kind of it's brilliant in a horrible way
0: Makes it's kind sense. of a it's kind of anti-fragile by design um, because if you're part of the out group majority, you know, day by day, we're buying into these systems that have been set up in our, you know, with each transaction and, and in every way that we participate with uh, the market or with capitalism are becoming uh, complicit piecemeal complicity.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. The only way to really take their power away is to just stop, giving it to them you know like stop paying attention to them giving them your money your taxes you, you know yeah. feeding into the that fire the various corporations that you know to be involved um start growing your own f- vegetables you, you know, gotta know, go like, full
0: ted kaczynski well yeah i the mean only way, which yeah, most aren't willing to
1: do. your solutions have already largely been um uh, already on their way out like um. Yeah. Most most seeds now, I think, are are owned at a corporate level by Monsanto. Right. Most most strains of right. growable vegetables and whatnot. Um. And so, mm. I mean, <laughs> the those kind of solutions are are becoming less of a, a possibility. But to play devil's mm. advocate, and I'm, I'm certainly not advocating for you know the devil. the the, 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 the scarier <laughs> the scarier implications of secret societies that you know the, the eating babies or, or whatever they get up to um yeah I'm not, I'm not advocating for that uh however to play devil's advocate on some level like humanity is a shit show and i mean certainly we do need to look at the world with the idea of of correcting its course or fixing it um and so it's it's not necessarily a a a terrible notion that 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 people are do want that kind of control over the world because left to our own devices uh you know nature is is not any more moral than um uh human the human manifestation of nature you know the organizational Mm. manifestation like just just because uh these groups ethically you know there's a lot of repugnant stuff it's not any less ethical than just the natural course of of humanity is it i mean or the animal kingdom or anything else nature is red in tooth and claw
2: so i'm a dog trainer i get to hang out with animals a lot i work with uh i I work at a veterinary clinic as well and um so i get to see the morality a little bit. Um, I used to work in the medical field, but I quit for moral reasons, the human medical field, um, because it's just so corrupt. And so I've, it's very important to me to be moral as, as much as I can, but there is a, pra- a pragmatic limit to that when you're trying to make it work in the world, when you have a, a kid that depends on you and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So I yeah, totally feel we- you. And I love your your approach, You know the way you look at life, you know just like if what you were saying thinking about it as as an if not as a belief and you know being curious it's great it's all wonderful yeah i i I,
1: you can you can uh you can really alienate people uh by talking about this stuff because when your 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 primary heuristic for engaging with with the world is is questioning like even asking the questions can can lead people to believe that you believe these things is yeah. like a foundational and that can really alienate you if you're not in a space yeah. where where you know what i mean like um, exactly people can as- assume uh political affiliation or or uh yeah or just you're you're mad like why would you exactly why would you even want to think about like the the cultural phenomena of aliens and fairies and secret societies and whatnot so yeah, yeah. look it's, it's 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 neat to be in any space where you can you can ask these
2: questions in like a non-judgmental yeah. way and also it's really cool to that, watch it's yeah, really cool it's to like, watch we, but that 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 being said, um, I just wanted to answer your initial question about the morality of animals, or your initial statement. Or, hmm. um, nature, I do think that uh, the morality of animals is, and the immorality of nature, and is uh, it is gruesome at times. You know, there's rape in animal world. There's um, there's uh, murder, of course, but you're, there's There's a. It's very different. There's there's animals that
1: meow during movies.
2: Yeah, (laughs) they're (laughs) the worst. That being said, it's all it's all coming from a place of innocence and necessity, as opposed to what we're talking about. Like these, um, this intent is what makes it different, right? The the intent. Yeah, that's a fascinating
1: observation. Look, uh, animals are. I love. I mean, animals are are certainly my favorite thing in in the world. Like, I love watching them. I love being around them. I like, I, I adore it. I'm always like, uh, there's something remarkable about communicating with something in in uh, without language. You know, like it's any animal lover will tell you that. Like, there's primitive telepathy. You know, body language and just the the vibe that you put off. You know, and yeah. the way they respond to that—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a beautiful thing. The really remarkable thing about animals, um, and w- why anybody would call them pure, even though they'll, you know, gut and torture a bird in the yard or something—is yeah. that you'll feed an animal, and you'll watch their bestial nature disappear. You will watch the—you you can see the finest qualities of of a, of a, a soul emerge mm-hmm. from that. You know, like what we would would think of is the best aspects of humanity, kindness and 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 uh, uh, self sacrifice and and so on and so forth. If you feed an animal, if you address their basic need, you will see a better thing emerge. Right? Mm. Anybody that's owned a pet can can attest to that. Um, I have a cat here, um, and mm. uh, he, he was still a kitten, and I had an older cat. And that older cat was dying of incredibly aggressive and terrible cancer. And um, uh, he, I'd I'd go to feed them and she'd be somewhere laying and being sick. And he would not eat until she was present. And so even if he was hungry, Mm. he would still go and get her and bring her to eat. And it was like just the most touching thing I've, I've, I've ever seen. And it was, it was, it was, I was pers- watching something self-sacrifice. The other cat didn't give a shit. The other cat was just like, I'm hungry. I want to eat. I want to eat now. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I've, I've seen, I've seen this purity of, of being directly with animals. So mm-hmm. I'm not totally throwing them under the bus and calling all of mm-hmm. nature horrific, you know, it's yeah. not terrible. Animals rule. But uh-huh. I mean, that's where we differ from animals. We have our basic needs met more than any time in human history. Like, it is so easy to be fed at the moment. People are overfed, you know? Like, we're, we we can have anything we want.
2: But sure, we're, but, we're but, still, but we're all isolated we're, socially, you know? Yeah. Right? I just just to bring up that point, like, uh, the basic needs, a lot of my closest friends and family are not being met socially, you know what I mean? And that can explain a lot of the, the addictive behaviors and the yeah you know,
1: yeah i mean in I in a too. lot of ways there's there's been like uh in the past couple of years we've collectively experienced a communal communally traumatic event you know like mm-hmm. uh i i i'm not certain how uh difficult or widespread the lockdown situation was over there but but here it was Mm. pretty serious like it was to the point Mm -hmm. where we were only allowed to leave our houses to Mm. go around the block exercising or uh go to the supermarket briefly um and that was that was a really uh even as like a, a mature adult you you there is a day will come when you're like this is starting to eat at me like this this routine of isolation uh i love solitude um i'm I'm really adapted to solitude and being able to just work it's not so much of an issue but like even somebody adapted to solitude and who enjoys it like the it's it's much easier to embrace solitude when you have the choice to not be alone yeah when you Mm -hmm. lose that choice it something uh something uh psychologically taxing occurs
3: yeah
2: mm-hmm.
1: and 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 for a lot of people culturally right now the the choice to be around other people seems to be like uh, diminishing like uh, you know these yeah. apps are, are make it so easy just to send text to each other and have like mm. this this simulacra of of human experience and um mm. it's a, it's a black mirror it's a black mm-hmm. mirror it gives like um it's like it's like. Watching porn and masturbating as opposed to like having real sex with a real person—it's like it's it's approximate, but there's something fundamental that is so different, and and Mm, so it feels completely different, even though you know you still come at the end, but it's
2: like it doesn't feel right. Yeah, I feel you. Yeah, it's a really good point.
1: Ultimately, what it's talking about is that the the internet in every way is a black mirror of our worst qualities. We, we think it's reflecting back something that is, is true, but what it's reflecting back is, is just like this, this dilution of the human experience. But it's yeah. addressing just enough of our, our human needs that we don't realize it. It's like this insidious um, mission creep of, like, of, of feeling like our needs are met, but uh, on a much deeper level, they're not being met. So there's yeah. this, this <clears throat> we're hungry ghosts. In in Asian uh, our culture, there's uh, one of the uh, reincarnation possibilities is, is as hungry ghosts, and this addresses what you were saying about um, if consciousness survives death, consciousness becomes a set of needs that that it's not that they're good and bad; it's just that they're they're like a magnet that is that is uh, become um, polarized to certain behaviors that are unhealthy for example right and so hungry ghosts are are people that need sex that need food that need stimulation and they've Mm -hmm. lost the body to Mm -hmm. that that can eat food that can have sex that can be stimulated so all they are is just a a magnet of needs that cannot be met anymore because it no longer has the the capacity Mm. for those needs to be met and it's a it's a certain kind of hell Mm. you know it's a According to Swedenborg, it's a hell for a lot of people. According to a guy yeah. um, named Robert Monroe, who mm. was a who was basically the Swedenborg of the seventies, he was also a very successful man who and very credible who uh, had these experiences and wrote about these experiences in a book called Journeys Out of Body. Um, mm. He wrote a trilogy of books. Um, those experiences were so profound and interesting. Uh, uh, the CIA. Mm um uh co-opted him and uh a nasa scientist named russell targ to mm. uh, look into the phenomena of those experiences um the, one of the papers deep diving into his gateway process has been declassified and it's um it's one of the most fascinating reads on the
2: internet i gotta check it out
3: that sounds amazing
1: yeah there's there's uh there's an interesting uh psychological uh perceptual phenomena um where with a candle in low light if you stare into a mirror for long enough um, you your your a certain fatigue sets in sets in in your brain and the mechanism for recognizing human faces starts to uh, be abstracted. And so, what happens is you will see yourself in the mirror uh, distort into a number of demonic and um, surreal uh, uh, faces. It's really mm. weird. Um, I've, I've done it. It's it's incredibly bizarre. You basically bork the facial recognition part of your brain to the point where mm-hmm. it's like it's it's like a funhouse mirror, and your your wow. features distort, and it it's very scary. It can be really. Uh, oh. I, I I I don't recommend it if you are easily yeah. startled
2: yeah but if you do want to experience a cheap psychedelic experience, go ahead some of these experiences like me i can tell I can tell you I'm not gonna like that <laughs> like 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 I don't even like watching certain movies anymore like once you kind of check out from that and try to break into the back into the innocence of the real world, you see like a like a show like I, the other day I tried to watch the new episode of the Boys it's just so gruesome and brutal and i saw it and i was like i was so i had been resensitized and i couldn't watch it it's too hurtful to my soul
1: uh it's you know there's 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 a need to desensitize yourself at a certain level uh -hmm. to the world so you'll see like teenagers and adolescents uh are the the primary market for like horror movies and gore porn and all that kind of stuff because yeah. they're they're creating the scar tissue necessary for navigating the world right um, you're climatizing to certain extremes in order to have a basis of comparison so horror movies and, and all that stuff they kind of function uh, psychologically and socially as a way to say this is the worst thing that can happen if I have the coping the coping skills necessary to confront the worst thing that can happen, I can mm. can... I can confront the tedium of work. I can confront mm-hmm. being embarrassed. I can confront the, uh, the, the myriad of, of experiences in adult life that are unpleasant, you know, there's so there's definitely there's certain function to, to it.
2: Another type of point of view way of looking at the world like what I learned in the native way is, um, you, you sensitize yourself and that's half the circle. And then you make yourself stronger that's the other half of the circle. So some people are very strong but not very sensitive. They're only living half of life. You know? And some people absolutely. are very sensitive but not very strong. They're living the other half of life. Absolutely. But you want absolutely you want both, right? Which is different than yes. desensitization. You know what I mean?
1: There are two paths in life, and both of them are, are equally, I think, as 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 important to the human experience and our, you know, the, the times when we show weakness and get a really true read on our environment, the times when we show strength and we get a less true read, but it's more effective socially. I mean, both mm. of those things are, are part of the core human experience. And I, 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 I think if you can't oscillate between both and compartmentalize yourself in order to navigate the world, like, uh, as two people, mm-hmm. then you're, you're missing out on, on the yin and the yang of human experience. Sometimes the, you want to be weak moment. and sometimes you want to be strong.
2: Yeah. And well, what if you could do that in every moment? You could be sensitive and strong to, to have the whole experience.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There it's the resolution of opposites is in the divine. There is a path that we walk that is about resolving the vast oppositional differences in, the, in human psychology, good and evil, right and wrong and uh, dark and light. You know these these are, are are fundamental polarities to refining consciousness. Um, a couple of years back, uh, I worked on some speculatory material um, for uh, addressing uh, the future future possibilities regarding artificial intelligence, and um, we we really dug into a, a lot of um, these notions about ethics and and right and wrong and and the polarities Mm. of of, uh, human personality and one of the conclusions that we drew was that if you were designing a a test environment for giving an artificial intelligence ethics for really creating a, a child a being that was capable of of tough decisions but also Uh, sensitive decisions and and caring and consideration if you were create if you wanted to create something that was that resolution of opposites and a a higher being then Mm. you would be hard-pressed to find a better and simulation simulating environment than the world and being a human being
2: you know if if you could if you could
1: convince an artificial intelligence that it was finite and in a human body it would have respect for the the sanctity of life you know if you put them in an environment where it was, it was uh, all of our reward systems rewarded a lack of ethics, and that being displayed uh, compassion to, uh, with much self-sacrifice. You know, they were good in a world that rewarded evil. Then whatever walked out the end would be something that that you could trust was. Deserving of the superpowers they were basically being given, you know. Um, Very cool. and so, so if we take artificial intelligence and simulation theory out of that equation, um, the, you really can't imagine a better environment than the world for developing mm. into something better than we start as.
2: Oh, absolutely. I, I remember having the same thought when I was we were we were, I was studying neuroscience back in college and I remember thinking like we everybody wants to create this artificial intelligence um through computational networks neural neural networks and being mm-hmm. like we already fucking did that like it's, it exists and it has ears nature it did has it. eyes and it has taste and it has touch and mm-hmm. it has a body and it's an, even better it's 10 times better well, here's million. an here,
1: here's an interesting observation about um uh I'm sure you guys and your audience are familiar with um uh, the recent story about Google's uh uh tech mm-hmm. coming out and claiming that their artificial intelligence Lambda has sentience, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um,
0: is this the one that hired an attorney? Uh, <laughs> I, I,
1: I, <laughs> I I haven't I haven't I haven't <laughs> I I haven't, I haven't gone into the, uh, the follow-up material for this anyway. So the, the TL, the TLDR on that is that he, he hung out with a chat bot and he was, he was convinced that this thing was sentient, um, because of his interactions with it. I think Mm -hmm. anybody that works with the, uh, in machine learning and understands the algorithms can tell you that it is, it is unlikely. Um, they're very, very, very good, but it is unlikely that it, it contains sentience, which doesn't mean it, isn't sentient it just means it's unlikely um however the the question that this hasn't yet kind of um brought up in people's minds is like well how sentient is the interviewer like um the, they did mm. a study um there was a study done let me let me dial that up because I, d- I do want to actually name the author of that study they wanted to uh research pristine the pristine experience of um uh, human consciousness. And uh, there are certain um, aspects of human consciousness that they considered important to pristine experience. Um, being uh, pristine experience, by the way, is just the the unregulated flow of experience as you uh, uh, objectively experience it, as it as it's going in your eyes, in your ears, um, in your all your sense organs combined. It is it is it is, is it, it it's mm. that objective reality. And then you add this this subjective reality of your thoughts and so on to that. Um, but this this researcher uh, whose name is Russell T. Hurlbert, um, uh he took uh, uh, he took a bunch of college kids, um, uh, stratified thirty uh, college students into, into groups, and he found that. Of those 30 college students who one would imagine are the best and brightest of our population, more or less, right? They they represent kind of an, an, an overly optimized, op, optimistic group of people. But he found that uh, inner inner speech and visualization were uh, not always present and in and, uh, and some people never present. Oh, that, yeah. That a, por- a portion of the population never have inner speech and a portion of the population cannot, uh, mentally visualize objects. And so if we, if we ask, (laughs) is that, is that a condition of sentience to be able to do that? If, if we consider that to be a condition of sentience, large portion of the population then aren't sentient. And I'm not, we we don't exactly know Mm. what the human race is. There might not be a necessity for, uh, uh, that level of consciousness to be distributed amongst all human beings. Right. It may be only necessary for a certain percentage of the population to be, uh, kind of bellwethers of consciousness and be experiencing things at a higher level and informing wow. the people around them. We, we have no idea how that's what really humanity cool concept. Is,
2: as a, mm, really as a collective, um, I had, I had a neuroscience so, teacher. Who was like completely convinced, and he convinced all of us that that consciousness was a farce, and that none of us possessed it. We're all just a system of more and more complicated reactions. And I didn't really uh, agree with that, but I thought it was a really cool hot take. And then well, hearing what you said, you know, it's a really cool way to tie I, tie it together. You guys
0: are familiar with the uh, psychological psychological bicameralism as a theory for consciousness. I think I think it, it was disproved, but it was an early idea that um, that early humans did not possess inner speech, or that the the mind was divided into two completely distinct halves. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of which was your outer voice, your your ability to speak and to um, sort of project a personality outwards, and then completely separate from that, with no interaction whatsoever, you had your inner voice, mm-hmm. um, and this came from I think, linguistic studies of, you know, like the Iliad and like our earliest texts that sort of like narrate almost as if there's no self-awareness present. Yes. And the idea was that at a certain point in our um, neurological evolution, yeah, Beowulf, uh, at a certain point in our neurological evolution, these two halves merged. But before Mm -hmm. that, you would have experienced the inner voice almost... As if the the vo- like the disembodied voice of God, which mm, uh, is shit. a phenomenon that would be described more frequently in ancient texts, you know, directly experiencing the voice of God, Whoa. and then that kind of fell off. God kind of low key fell off um, as we became more uh,
2: psychologically modern. Well, that would tie into the whole Swedenborg thing, and like, uh, the other uh, fellows you mentioned where they're they're actually experiencing God through this automatic writing, which is our modern brains interpretation of God's word. Whereas like back then it was more God spoke to me, you know, because that's just the way our brains are structured. That's how we interpreted it. Now it's like God's still speaking to us, but in a different it's just showing up in a different way, you know.
3: Yeah, I think here, Swedenborg would say here. like our capacity for thinking is a gift kind of bestowed to us by God. And it it overlaps with our, you know, our ability to speak and maybe sub-vocalize or uh, or the uh, visualize, the ability to visualize in our minds. But I, I feel like he would also say like those are maybe more subtle and less lesser tools of consciousness. The ability to sub-vocalize and Imagine physically shaped thing. I think there's another set of things, which would be a different categorization of experience and consciousness would just be like the opening of the soul senses, you know, through prayer, the idea of that you kind of have this eternal spiritual body inside this shell of like a physical body. And that could be like an inner and outer voice. He also talks about how Whoa. this existence on earth is really just, a time for us to experiment and test and individuate as spirits in like a super fast way and kind of come into our own understandings, try things out uh, in a way that we can feign an ideas to, to get fit in with certain people that you kind of see how it is to be with them. Then you can go somewhere else, see how it is, how existence feels over there with another group and fit in there because we all have a kind of inner and an outer reality, a difference between that. Like, you know, we have like, we keep our own, you know, counsel. But, you know, we have our own beliefs, which we kind of keep to ourselves and our own approach to, to things. And we can kind of, you know, keep that private and then also keep a front and a enough personas or a series of personas that we put out to the world as tools to kind of explore ideas. Mm-hmm. Because once we, once you enter the spirit world, you lose that, that uh, ability to fake, fake it people see you and instantly know your like your soul's nature, like where you are at, exactly where you are right now and everything that brought you to where you are now. And so you can no longer learn in that way that you, you we can like in the, on earth.
1: It's it's really a uh, psychologically mature attitude to take to consider people as a, a collectivized set of personalities. The Japanese, uh, culturally, have recognized this for a long time. And the Chinese, uh, in Japan, hone and tatame. Uh, you've got hone, which are your, your, your true feelings, what you want, what you love, what you believe in. And then tatame is like the guy that you go to the office, You know, the person that you have to be in a, a functional, social way. And um, so you might go home and uh, plan in um, a punk band or something. But then you go to the office and you're the other guy. Mm -hmm. Um, in the West, in a lot of ways, we're less psychologically mature and culturally mature and that we feel we Mm -hmm. always need to keep it real and we always need to express ourselves and we always need to, um, we always need to be the truest version of ourself and reflect Mm -hmm. that inner experience. And I, I, I think it's, it's ineffective in all scenarios. You know, it's like, as I said before, sometimes it's, it's a good idea to, be weak and sometimes it's a good idea to be strong it depends upon the context and the situation and if you can't control the switch then you're at the the whims of of fate and chance and time and culture and everything else you need to address the fact that you are multiple people with multiple responsibilities and if you're not steering the ship then collectively uh society is and you're you're not in control so you can choose I'm ha- I'm having a, a really good time. It's good. good. It's nice to talk about this shit. Yeah. yeah.
0: Awesome. Okay, so I'll try to I'll try to just kind of blow through this just the spark notes. I think a good segue from what we were talking about earlier, one of the things uh that the article brings up is that um empathy, like by any measurable metric, has gone down in each successive generation that's raised uh immersed in the Internet, you know, and the Internet's sort of growing influence over our lives. They, it, he quotes, Because of the
1: inability to see each other's faces, right?
0: Right. So he quotes a, ph- a philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas, uh, who says, your ethical responsibility to other people emerges out of their face, the experience of looking directly into the face of another living subject. So, yeah, it has a lot. I mean, the ways that we're socialized, I'm, I'm sure there's a... Uh, controversial point to be made about masks there but it's kind of like when you're in traffic you know <laughs> and you're like capable of such a level of contempt for another person because you can't see them like things that you would never think or say if you were standing right next to someone yeah but if they're in an automobile that's, and they cut you off it's like that's, it's that's a, part a demonic of the demonic side uh, of you <laughs> yeah
1: yeah but that's part of the maturation process and that's part of the 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 arc of self-awareness is to become aware of the possibilities of other people to be complex human beings you know from from a really we see a very superficial version of people right um and our ability mm-hmm. to empathize in what we're not seeing in the areas of their life and what we're not seeing like i i i really uh i really try and put that at the forefront of my brain when dealing with um people online or via text particularly via text because some i think research says that we we misunderstand or 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 mistake like up to 85 percent of text messages or something like the, yeah. the emotional content mm-hmm. or the that's inference
0: that's my undoing um, and many like, of, the, so much like of the time i
1: mm-hmm. i i need to constantly have the other person as like a complex and emotive and like uh you know I, I need to constantly humanize people and never ever let myself just get angry over like the inference of a text. like um, to the point where I I no longer emotionally engage in texts like that, even if they're like super hostile. I I I, I try and always see through the facet of like you know realizing that everybody has a, is a, having a collection of shit days at the moment because of COVID and everything. So, yeah, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. You know
1: it's really hard not to like emotionally jump when you're annoyed or something, but like, I I think it's better for your soul. If you just like constantly remind yourself that we're all doing our best and we're all doing our best with limited information, you know, like,
0: um, have you, have you guys heard of dark patterns? Have I heard of dark patterns? Mm -hmm. No. So it's a term in user design it refers to interfaces that trick people into making bad decisions. And this is something that's become a pretty prevalent part of the Internet. So, like, when you click a pop-up and you accidentally, um, you know, it's designed to look like a window on your computer, so you're, you're not able to close it or you accidentally install some kind of uh, ransomware or spyware or something. Um, but, I mean, dark patterns have become, like, a very spooky, intentional part of the way we experience the Internet
1: yeah so what you're talking about uh, with these apps and dark patterning, it's kind of like the the technological equivalent of predatory mimicry, right where, mm. where something disguises itself as something else to effectively achieve right. its own goals It's interesting, yeah, it's nature again
0: like biomimicry, yeah yeah, taking advantage of our most of our vulnerabilities. there's a, a video that I think it was Google it was an internal video. At Google that leaked this the the selfish ledger selfish ledger have you guys seen this Mm -mm. hmm okay this is uh, really spooky I'll show it's like two or three minutes long Um, I'll show you right now I would call it demonic yeah
6: this man is Jean-Baptiste Pierre Antoine de Monet Chevalier de Lamarck in 1809 50 years before Darwin published The Origin of the Species, he wrote what is widely recognized as the first comprehensive theory of evolution. His book, The Philosophie Zoologique, introduced the notion of an internal code within every living thing, which, when passed down through successive generations, defined the physiological characteristics of a species. At the center of Lamarck's theory laid what he called the adaptive force. He believed that the experiences of an organism during its life modified this internal code, and upon reproduction, this modified version was passed down to its young. Whilst not biologically accurate, and ultimately superseded by Darwin's theory of natural selection, the epigenetic theories put forward by him are beginning to find new homes in unexpected places.
2: Still compatibility complexes?
6: When we use contemporary technology, a trail of information is created in the form of data. When analysed, it describes our actions, decisions, preferences, movement, and relationships. This codified version of who we are becomes ever more complex, developing, changing, and deforming based on our actions. In this regard, this ledger of our data may be considered a Lamarckian epigenome, a constantly evolving representation of who we are. This is Bill Hamilton, one of the most significant evolutionary theorists of the 20th century, His work studying the social structures of ants, bees, and wasps had a profound effect on our understanding of the role of genes in social behaviours such as altruism. He believed, and went on to prove, that the driving force behind evolution was not the individual, but the gene. He stated that the ultimate criterion which determines whether a gene will spread is not whether the behaviour is to the benefit of the behaviour, but whether it is to the benefit of the gene. In the mid-1970s, the British evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins built on the work of Hamilton and others to popularize the concept of the selfish gene. In his book of the same name, he introduced the notion of a gene which, whilst devoid of any motives or will, could be metaphorically and pedagogically described as if it were. In this model, the individual organism is a transient carrier, a survival machine for the gene. User-centred design principles have dominated the world of computing for many decades, but what if we looked at things a little differently? What if the ledger could be given a volition or purpose, rather than simply acting as an historical reference? What if we focused on creating a richer ledger by introducing more sources of information? What if we thought of ourselves not as the owners of this information, but as custodians, transient carriers, or caretakers? Initially, the notion of a goal-oriented ledger may be user-driven. As an organization, Google would be responsible for offering suitable targets for a user's ledger. Whilst the notion of a global good is problematic, topics would likely focus on health or environmental impact to reflect Google's values as an organization. Once the user selects a volition for their ledger, every interaction may be compared to a series of parallel options. If one of these options allows the ledger to move closer to its goal, It will be offered up to the user. Over time by selecting these options the user's behavior may be modified and the ledger moves closer to its target. As this line of thinking accelerates and the notion of a goal-driven ledger becomes more palatable suggestions may be converted not by the user but by the ledger itself.
0: Wow. All right so uh, it's a little longer than I expected but you know it It's like a bunch of psycho babble up front, but what and it's under the auspices of you know b- benevolence, but basically what Google is collecting uh, all data on us. doing yeah harvesting all your data and then rather than uh, leave it to you the user to decide what you want, predictively assigning to like re-sculpting your entire online experience um, to show you things that you you know like the example in the visuals that they used was like okay I want my whole online experience to help me lose weight or something like that. Um, and then, yeah, just like reshaping how you interact with the internet, which is how you interact with uh, sort of everything. A a lot of the world, um, which is terrifying. And this was, this was like an internal, uh, video that it wasn't meant for the public, but when it leaked, people were like, okay, this is, this is terrifying. I mean, Uh.
1: it's, this is, this is the, another, primary problem with everything at the moment is that there are a lot of like really benevolent and good ideas that are largely trojan horses for the same thing people have always done you know which is mm-hmm. control and power and, and wealth acquisition mm-hmm. it's makes me incredibly distrustful of course like
0: yeah like um being connected or whatever whatever the um premise of the internet is is not necessarily a bad thing and I could see a scenario where it could be done in a way that's healthier and maybe more nuanced. But as long as it exists you know, in a market and for the purposes of extracting as much profit from each individual user as possible, it's always going to serve evil or at the very least amoral ends.
1: I feel like I'm thoroughly convinced that the, uh, the internet is made of demons not as a metaphor, but just it's literally true. It's literally just Beelzebub's all the way down.
2: Yeah. 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 <laughs>